In a world of what are yous, welcome to the place where the answer is always human. My name is Natalie, and you are listening to Some Kind of Brown, a podcast powered by Yellow Jacket Media about mixed and multiracial life, our journeys to find our identities, reconnecting with ourselves and the communities we're a part of, all from a Southern girl who's still trying to figure out things for herself. Hello, it is me, your friendly host. I wanted to hop on again because I apparently always have something to say in the beginning and let you know that we still have buttons and stickers of the new text logo available. I love them and their beaded happiness or beaded inspiration. If you are a patron, your stuff is in the mail. If you would like a button and or some stickers, all you have to do is buy one coffee, through the link in my bio on my social media, and if you buy two, I will send you all of the goodies. Also, I haven't been checking my reviews, and there are a few more. Thank you so much for those of you who have reviewed. Keep an eye out for things that we have coming in the future, like the YouTube channel on March 5th, and I actually have a giveaway that's going to be happening in March. That's it for me. Let's get on to the episode. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Some Kind of Brown. We have yet another guest, two guests, very mysterious, very fun (laughs) guests. (laughs) Would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Mm -hmm. We are from the podcast Feminists Without Mystique. My name is Erin. And my name's Maria. And, uh, We're so happy to be here. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little about your podcast? I mean, Feminists Without Mystique. Yeah, it's about feminism, but what, <laughs> beyond that, what is really like the core of your podcast? Well, the tagline is um, politics, sex, and the unrelenting fire hose of bullshit in the news. Um, <laughs> and I think recently we, uh, we've trended towards kind of responding to the biggest news items and kind of trying to take the bigger trends that are happening and dissect them and catch ourselves up as much as everyone else on things like, okay, where are we at with impeachment? Mm-hmm. What is happening with the primaries? That's still a question. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. There'll be a question for a while. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, but we do try to also have other episodes where we um, pause and have just like a general theme that we tackle, like the pink tax or... Yes. Yeah, various types of privilege, yes. male privilege, white privilege. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So sometimes we have kind of focused episodes on overarching themes in the world. And sometimes we're more kind of responding to events as they happen and mm-hmm. as we are weeping. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely understand that feeling. I watched some of the primaries last night when we were recording. So uh, last week, for those of you listening, but. Elizabeth Warren tearing into everyone was very oh. interesting to watch. Yeah. It was, uh, it yeah. It made me feel warm inside. I'm a lover, not a fighter, man, but that was, ooh, so good. Yeah. I don't like her, but I also don't like Bloomberg, so. Wow. He had to be called out, you know. He has, he has a lot of problems. I, I wasn't expecting to feel as, like, vindicated <laughs> as I ended up feeling after mm-hmm. he just watching him get crushed. <laughs> yeah. uh, I watched Philip DeFranco 
earlier today. And he said that people have discovered a new kink of watching a billionaire get eviscerated. <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I can I'm identify. guilty as charged. <laughs> Which I normally, I'm sure most people know who Caitlin Bennett is. If you don't know who she is, that's fine. Don't Google her. But <laughs> if you know who she is, I tend to feel really bad once people start getting made fun of. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel sorry for her until she got ran off her recent kind of thing and people were throwing stuff at her car. I'm like, oh, she's got garbage ideas. But man, that must be terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Delicate balance of verbally eviscerating people who deserve it, mm-hmm. but maybe not violently. Yeah. <laughs> pursuing it's, yeah. it's understandable why people would be upset yeah. yeah i would never want to take that away from people but i'm also like oh yeah would you want to be harassed like this it's one thing to ask stupid ass questions mm-hmm. like how would you feel if there are tampons in the men's bathroom uh, there are tampons in the men's bathroom and like yeah what about it <laughs> let people live yeah let people menstruate it's it's craziness but i don't really feel sorry for bloomberg so no i don't either it'll be okay he can cry into his millions of dollars billions of dollars (laughs) i have that same knee-jerk reaction when like people are mean to other people where i just kind of hate it and recoil but none of that with bloomberg i was like (laughs) i got over it with trump a long time ago nothing anyone could say about him where i'd be like too far yeah (laughs) okay that sarah huckabee sanders can't enjoy appetizers in a little restaurant outside dc that's fine with me i'm fine with that yeah Yeah. i'm not gonna say much about that you know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know it's so complicated and there are a lot of feelings that go into it and in politics specifically now because of trump and we covered a little bit of trump when i covered the episodes on the central park five and how he wanted to reinstate the death penalty for literal teenagers who, mm-hmm. spoiler, didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, and him being president has brought out so much racism, so much vitriolic nonsense from people that have been previously underground or maybe not on everyone's radar. Mm-hmm. Because when I was growing up, until probably when Obama got elected, people would always say that racism is over. And in those beginning years when Obama was president, they still were like, racism is over. We have a black president. This is something that isn't a big deal anymore. Uh, This is an obvious sign of progress. And you have Trump was elected as a reactionary thing. We had a black president. We had a very, uh, for that time, progressive black president and people didn't like it. So when you had this man who was very comfortable being publicly white. Mm -hmm. I think people who were bothered by Obama or had those thoughts of racism kind of felt empowered to speak out. Mm -hmm. And it's just been kind of nonstop from there, from my perspective. Have you seen that? Mm -hmm. How has that been from you to watch? I would totally agree. And I mean, even when when Obama was running, when he was elected, all of the very clearly racist attacks that had nothing to do with his substance or character against him, against Michelle, Angel Queen from the Heavens, those were very (laughs) evident. And I do think that Trump's election was kind of a backlash to that in a lot of ways. Um, I think he used a lot of 
not very subtly <laughs> coded, but coded language. I mean, make America great again for who, you mm-hmm. know, the way he would speak about immigrants and people of color generally. And also just since being elected, just the very, very clearly racist language he uses and the way that that riles his base up. I would definitely agree with you. <laughs> yeah. And then just, you know, his the policies that he's been right. putting in place to, it's not just, it's not that he's just a bloviating fool with a bunch of word, empty words. He has Stephen Miller, you know, implementing really vicious immigration policies. And, you know, from the start, he had the, the Muslim ban and then trying to gaslight everyone saying it wasn't a Muslim ban after mm-hmm. he called it that. And he just added more countries to the list with, mm-hmm. you know, it was, they aren't blanket preventative measures. It's disturbing. Yeah. And I think it's, it was definitely, I agree, a reaction mm-hmm. to... Right. Him with Obama. the good people on both sides. Yes. Nazis, oh gosh. Nazis. Um, I I I don't think there is any valid argument anyone could make that he is not racist and that he is not stoking racism in this country and kind of igniting these racist people that already existed but were kind of like maybe flying under the radar, mm-hmm. kind of giving them the sense of power. You know, and hate crimes have been up since he's been in office. And I think that him and his words and his actions have a lot to do with that. He's empowering racists in this country. And we had kind of, we had this episode right when we started podcasting. It was within the first 10, I think, where it was basically because I I have a lot and you have a few um, Mm -hmm. conservative relatives, MAGA heads, who we really wanted to just calmly like lay out the case because, you know, I had, I had an aunt who very, I guess, I I don't even want to attribute the well-meaning, but she asked like, how is he sexist or racist? Like, or, or mm. racist examples. And we, I think that was the, the kind of catalyst for us to say, okay, we're just going to stop and do one episode where we just go through all the examples we can, mm-hmm. like the most prominent examples on both sides, like on, of racism and sexism and just say, okay, now that we've laid this out, we are going to continue to call him racist and sexist and not have to back it up every single time with all of, with this litany of evidence. Yeah. Right. I can never say that I've been grateful for him bringing racists out of the woodwork and empowering them or emboldening them. But I can say that, like you said, it's been very vindicating to see people come out of the woodwork and be like, see, I told you it was mm-hmm. still happening, mm-hmm. you know? It's very complicated, my feelings on that. But on the other hand, like, could you stop? (laughs) (laughs) Could you stop, though? (laughs) Now that we know it's still here, um, I would like to motion for stopping. (laughs) Dismiss it now. Permanently end it. Yeah, literally last weekend I was getting uh, lunch with my dad, and he was like, you know, honestly, when Trump was, I didn't realize how much racism and misogyny were still alive in this country until Trump was elected. And I think that that has been mimicked by a lot of white people who were living in ignorant bliss of like, oh, you know, there's some racist people, but like pretty much it's fine. Yeah. yeah. They were kind of like, oh, wait, no, it's not, which certainly they could have listened to people of color and come to the same conclusion. But uh, I think that a lot of people kind of had that realization once he was elected and kind of has been doing all the things he's been doing. This is one of the reasons I wanted to ask you to come on. I think that people had their head in the sand very willingly because it's very uncomfortable to say there's still racism and that you're part of this structure that is impeding people's upward mobility. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's very uncomfortable to say, I have to face this racism today, or I have to keep up with what this certain group is facing. Because who, who wants to talk about that? Who wants to face it? Mm-hmm. I guarantee you, people of color do not want to face it. But the only difference is we don't have a choice. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of the negative feedback that's come from white people that I've noticed has been, uh, if they're not racist, has just been, why do we have to talk about this? It's painful. They feel like they're under attack. Like their whole world has shifted and we are just thrusting this upon them without Mm -hmm. any rhyme or reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, white people have been able to achieve success without thinking about race a day in their lives. Um, most white people haven't had to think of themselves in terms of race. And I think because of that tend to view racism simply, like they think racists are bad people who intentionally, consciously, actively dislike people because of race. They don't think of systemic racism or any role they could have played in it. Mm-hmm. And then they go on the defense because they have this belief that good people can't possibly have any association with racism. Ignoring the fact, again, that it's a system that we've all been socialized into. White people hold institutional and social power over people of color. Like If you're white, you have immense, you've enjoyed immense benefits, whether or not you realize it. And it's not your fault, so to speak, but you become culpable when you maintain and accept the status quo as it is. And I think a big thing is, you know, white people taking the idea of white privilege as a personal attack versus a fact. Mm-hmm. Or this idea like, oh, I come from a low-income family. I don't have privilege without, you know, seeing it very simplistically and not understanding that, like, no matter what you've been through, if you're a white person in this country, you have white privilege. That's not to say you haven't struggled. It's to say that there's a very specific type of struggle that is institutionalized in this country that you have benefited from. And if you don't like that, you need to work to correct it, even though race has not been something you've thought about much because you haven't had to. And, you know, there's some very well-meaning people that I have met through doing this podcast, and their response is just, what can I do? What do I do? And the fact that they've gotten to that place where they feel comfortable asking, I think, shows a lot about them. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of nuances, and I think that a barrier maybe for white people, and you can kind of give me your perspectives if you think this is what's happening, they don't want to be labeled as racist. So they don't ask questions if there's something they realize that might be going on and they're not really sure what's happening. Mm-hmm. Is that if that makes sense? Yeah. Or is it right for me to say this? Is it wrong for me to say this? I saw a conversation on Twitter recently where this woman was trying to defend using a part of native native culture out of context. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh my God. No, don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> but she didn't understand why. She she just kept going, this is a part of um, our culture, our heritage, and yada, yada, yada. And people are like, no, it's no. <laughs> Not a part of your culture or your heritage. <laughs> right. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> Definitely. And I, I think that there's a huge part of this comes down to it's it's it isn't necessarily malintended, but it's it's a lack of education that mm-hmm. specifically white people get. They, you know, they're they're not introduced to systemic racism and and the history of generational wealth accumulation mm-hmm. and um how 
we can attribute a lot of this to hand, handouts from the government that happened for our our grandparents and kind of the post-World War II boom of that generation. And I credit a lot of of my kind of social awareness as having happened as a, as a direct result of my high school history teachers, um, especially one that was, that made me particularly uncomfortable with my privilege when I was a sophomore and started the first day of the class ever being like, Hey, congratulations that you're here. You didn't do a thing to deserve it. Or like, and, well. and, <laughs> yeah. and I was sort of like, you know, a 15 year old, like, Ugh, you know, I, the instinct to be defensive, he kept pushing on that instinct all year. And I really feel like I, if only we could get to people earlier, you would lose that defensive wall that I think everyone like, or I think a lot of white people just have because no one likes to feel attacked or like they're being targeted, but it's like, you have to kind of penetrate that and get at it early so that it's something that is understood and accepted earlier. And then you can begin to see the world the way it actually is. You can begin mm-hmm. to listen to other people and their experiences and then have a completely different concept of what this country has been for throughout all of history mm-hmm. and how we can try to change it for the better. For sure. When I taught, I had a student who was very upset about immigration and the, con- the conversations around it. And he couldn't seem to grasp why I was teaching about being compassionate in this area and why we were helping them. Because as he said, he was like, why would we do this service project for this group of people if they very obviously aren't doing anything to help themselves? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, which is a huge, huge can of worms. <laughs> the way I handled it was, I don't know if you've seen this, but it was really pop not really popular, but it was it made its way into popular culture several years ago, I think now. And it was this experiment of privilege. So you get a group of people and you take one step forward if you came from a two-parent household. Take one step back if you're the first person in your family to go to college. Take one, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. the next week we came back and I did that with my group because mm-hmm. I wanted them to see like this is something that is systemic is something you don't realize all the time that you're benefiting from mm-hmm. and it was very jarring for him and his first reaction was my parents studied and they became optometrists and they work in this retirement village place and they earned their money and I'm like oh, okay well other mm-hmm. people are working too. Mm-hmm. If no one else worked, how in the world would anything function? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's very hard, I think, to explore these thoughts, especially when you don't start young. You have all these ideas about what this country is or what people are like. And until it's challenged, I don't think people think about it. Right. I agree. And it's like when you think about and it's slowly getting better when you think about like representation Mm -hmm. and, you know, like growing up as a blonde haired, blue eyed white girl, like I saw. Sure, I would argue that like white men have more privilege, but like more than half of white women voted for Trump. Like we don't get a pass. Like growing up, I saw people that looked like me represented, you know, and when you go for white straight cis men, it's you know, even more so where they grow up and they see themselves as the protagonists in all these stories, mm-hmm. as important, as intelligent, as the default. 
and we're all raised around this. And so I think that's also damaging to, to children and to teens to kind of grow up and not see a reflection of yourself. Or if you're coming from, you know, I'm a white man or I'm a white woman and just seeing yourself, you don't need to stop and consider people that don't look like you, you know, or think yeah. of them as the protagonist or think of them in those ways. And so I think like that in conjunction with how textbooks just like water down history and, and how segregated, not legally, but how like segregated communities really are, mm -hmm. you know, and you just come out with a bunch of ignorant white people because they don't feel the need to challenge these things, you know. And there are so many instances too, where like, I think people can live their lives quite comfortably and move through the world without ever feeling like, like a minority, you know, they like you or that you are in the minority um, of, a, of a community. Like my dad like tells the story about the first time that he was like looking around feeling like, oh, I'm not around a bunch of white people. <laughs> like, you know, it was like a very like formative moment where he was like, oh my God, this is how... <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was in college and like the fact that that's a thing until like some people's call it you know it's it's something that we should work to try to change earlier right that's, that's so funny it, <laughs> I cannot imagine a time oh, when I went to college I joined all these cultural organizations and I had the opposite experience I was like yes I'm not the only brown person in this group so I joined the Muslim student organization. I joined the Asian student organization. I was like, please fill my life with color. <laughs> please, please. I'm tired of being alone. <laughs> You've heard that term, I'm sure, the being the only person in the room and how isolating that can be. It's very strange, especially when you come from a very predominantly white area. It can be jarring to be in an area with other people. <laughs> it, but a good, in a good way. Yeah. It sounds silly that, you know, that would have to be a thing. I don't know. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's not something you would actively think about, like, who would notice it, right? So when I go into a space, I'm very aware of how many people there are that look like me and how many aren't. Mm -hmm. And I feel very uncomfortable still going in majority white areas. I get mm -hmm. a little defensive or I kind of brace myself for a negative interaction because that's what a large group of white people means to me. Someone's mm -hmm. going to say something or treat me a certain way. You know, I don't know if that's always fair. It's something that bothers me about myself that I am always bracing myself against an onslaught of racism that I think is coming. But at the same time, I wake up and there's another Native woman who's been missing or murdered and isn't getting the right coverage that she deserves or another innocent unarmed Black person is murdered. Mm -hmm. So what am I supposed to do? to improve the way I look at white people when I have this kind of context. Right. Yeah. I don't know. And it's, and you know, white, white people often will look at predominantly communities that predominantly people of color and think, Oh, this must be a dangerous area. This and that. Then when you think about like Trayvon Martin was in a gated white community when he was murdered, when you like people of color are unsafe in white communities. Yeah. And I, I think that's real the narrative in the media and elsewhere until yeah, I guess it's changed a little bit in some ways recently, but there's this narrative that, Oh, these, these neighborhoods of people of color are so dangerous and this and that when in 
it's kind of similar to the narrative that trans people in bathrooms are dangerous. When in reality, no, like the person who is at risk in that situation is the trans woman. Yeah. In these white spaces, like those are when these sort of unarmed, you know, black men often are are killed. So I think it's a very like fair and valid fear to have based on the entire history and the current state of the United States. Yeah, I think it's it's totally fair. And it's the whole, like, what you're just speaking of is, like, also the whole ethos of get out. <laughs> like, the, uh, <laughs> I mean, like, just the idea that, like, there is not safety in these, use the word white, like, whitewashed, like, these, like, 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 stereotypical white suburbs that are sort of, they have this, this image and mm-hmm. sterile image. Yeah. When in fact, there's a lot of toxicity and real danger that exists there for people of color. We should be talking about a whole lot more. It's fair for you to be, you know. <laughs> we as white women say, it's okay. <laughs> it's still not something that I really like about myself because I don't think it's fair. Not every white person is going to be someone who is going to try to not really attack, but like be some kind of threat, be it physically or emotionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to approach everyone with the same amount of trust or the same amount of human understanding. I don't want to like talk to you and assume that you're going to be racist until proven otherwise, because that's not fair. Mm-hmm. But then you have those experiences. So like this conversation I wanted to have because there, there are two sides. What can we do to make white people feel like they can be part of the conversation, which they do have a place in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And what do you think can help make people like me not feel as insecure? God, I mean, white people would need to be better by and large. I think it's like just human to human. I think it's wonderful that you want to approach individuals that way. But, you know, on the flip side, the fact that there is all this history and that people say, oh, I don't see color. I'm not racist, which inherently is kind of racist. If you're not seeing color, you're not identifying the struggles of other communities. And I mean, I guess uh, the only comparison I can kind of think of, it's not a comparison, but just I, when I'm alone, I am always afraid if I'm walking alone and it's dark outside of any fucking man that I see, mm-hmm. I'm afraid of men. I do not, I don't inherently trust men due to experiences I've had, you know, men enjoying this power, just this kind of combination of things. And I'm aware of that in myself. And I, I don't think I've done the work you've done to try to <laughs> overcome it so much. But I think for me, at least it comes from a lack of feeling safe, and just a fear that he is going to either say something that makes me feel awful or is going to be violent with me. You know, I don't know how to kind of get past that when it is so deeply rooted in how society is and the experiences that people have had. I don't know. I mean, how I do you do it, Maria. Uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> solve the world's problems right now. <laughs> solve it. Solve oh, it. no, that's yeah. I. <laughs> I wish. The first thing that jumped into my mind is like something that I think white people need to do. And 
I think there's a valid reason not to. And I, and I hear a lot of like liberal white people with conservative family members sort of say like, I'm not going to engage in this conversation because like, I want to preserve the relationship or I want mm-hmm. to, and that's of course, that's everyone's personal, you know, you can do whatever you want with your conversations and your family. But um, I think that actually having conversations can move things forward, or at least I've found not with everyone, just with, but with some of like some people who mm-hmm. are the reddest of red, make America great people. Mm-hmm. It's it's wild to me. Like I have these conversations and I bring it up on the podcast. Like I have my, my godfather, this is my uncle who is just, oh God, it's very maddening. Like, gee, yeah, he's a, he's a Trump fan. And, um, mm-hmm. It's hard. It's emotionally exhausting. It's definitely frustrating. And there have been times where I've just had to hang up the phone, cough, cough, the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, but, oh, Lord. <laughs> but, uh, there, but I found that with measured conversations where I bring up things like conversations that say like the three of us are having, there's a shared understanding of kind of where we're at and where we need to be. And we all have this general pool of knowledge that we're drawing from. And that is missing with a lot of conservatives. And if you if you do explain to them certain things in certain ways, like facts are are nasty little things that don't, you know, if if you send them like we have this segment on our podcast where we it's called the We See You and we say little things that are happening in the news that are below the headlines but are like really upsetting. And I, I forget what I was talking about, but I think it was like a murder, you know, a murdered Black Lives Matter activist, I think in Missouri, I'm pretty sure. And my uncle said, like, just unprovoked, he was like, I, you know, I listened to that. And then I rewound it. I listened again. I listened a few times. I Googled it. I was doing a ton of, you know, I looked, I looked it all up. And now I think I understand. I understand much better this whole Black Lives Matter movement and like what people are talking about when they're talking about this violence that is like happening without it being like recognized on a national scale. Right. And that felt like I was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Small wins. wins. I think to a certain extent you have to wait till someone's ready because you Mm -hmm. can't change anyone's mind unless they're open to a new perspective. But mm-hmm. it's really, it. I guess the question then becomes, what is the priority for people of color? Do we spend our energy trying to, I don't know, I guess, persuade white people? Or should our focus just be on bolstering our community? Because either way, I feel like we kind of lose out, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I mean, it does. the onus needs to be on, on white people who purport to be anti-racist to kind of like what Maria was speaking to need to confront the racism of their white peers. When you're in these groups of, of white people and someone makes a, quote, casually racist joke or something like that, <laughs> it's more comfortable to be quiet, maybe. But, like, you need to say something and maybe you'll get made fun of or, oh, you're so PC. But I think those moments are really important because you have an opportunity to kind of confront these things head on. And oftentimes when people make like stupid little fucking jokes like that, they don't understand what they're doing. And if they are comfortable to say that in front of you, they feel like they're in a comfortable place. And you, I feel like it's the obligation of someone who is white in those circles to speak up. And I think it is the responsibility of white people to educate other white people about these things because 
expecting people of color to fix white people. And there's like, it's, it's such a burden, you know, you think of weathering, you think of all these things. I think it's the responsibility of white people to sort of educate other white people. But at the same time, it's how do we get people to speak up? And if they feel, if they say, oh, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, I'm not racist. How do we get them to turn that into being actively anti-racist? Because mm-hmm. I think it's not enough to just say, oh, I've gotten to this point where I'm not racist anymore I'm a, or I'm aware of these kinds of things that are harmful to other communities. Mm-hmm. That's not going to change it. Just being aware of it isn't going right. to help me or help yeah. anyone. So I don't know. What was it like for you? What? How did you come to this? Is it something you grew up with or is it something you realized yourselves through certain experiences? Um, I grew up in a upper middle class, predominantly white and Asian neighborhood. I didn't have a black teacher until college. I had some Latinx teachers as Spanish teachers in high school. I had a few Asian American teachers. I didn't really, I think my graduating class of 450 students had three black people in it. And so I grew up not really thinking about race in any real way. I never had to. It was Mm. my white privilege not to. And then I think in college, as I became more just politically active and started just looking at the world around me differently and trying to understand people who were different from me. And also just sort of that awakening you have after middle or high school or whatever, when you're like, oh, the things that I learned, there's so much more than that, you know, specific people choose and write these textbooks. And so for me, it was just kind of finding a political identity and from there looking around and seeing like, oh shit, yeah. racism, huh? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I do it. I'm in Southern California. Something about that phrase I find hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shuck. And, and if someone had said like, oh, white privileged me when I was younger, I would have been like, but n- no, I worked hard. You know, like those same defensive things white people say, where it's like, no, I worked hard for what I have. It's like, yes, yeah. you worked hard, but other people could have worked just as hard as you and would not be where you're at. Especially when you're getting into the age where scholarships become relevant oh god yeah because <laughs> that's when all the starts the fights start happening mm-hmm. yeah what a messy what messes right. messy territory that is I vividly <laughs> remember in high school i remember like i remember i did support affirmative action i remember talking to a friend who now is all woke and super liberal but i remember i just don't really get affirmative action because wouldn't you know people of color want to be treated fairly and not have this like leg up <laughs> Oh, you no. know, and I Ouch. think, right? <laughs> and it's yes. wrong, and that's not how any of this works. It's about trying to somewhat level the playing field. But I think, like, that's where a lot of people come from because they're like, I don't, I'm white, I don't see racism. People don't follow me around in the in the store. You know, I don't feel unsafe when a police officer stops me. Like, I don't get, you know, I'm not experiencing it. I don't see it, and so it's like you need yeah. to listen to people of color and their experiences. And now there are videos of everything. Yeah. I mean, I think too, like, I mean, it's just, it's so frustrating because it feels like a lot of the ignorance could be 
cut out if the education system was better and structured in a better way. Like where, first of all, there was like more standard, like federal, I think, regulation around like textbooks so that like we all, I mean, I guess not in, not during this administration, my God, keep them away from the Um, But just generally, you know, trying to make sure that we are shaping American history in a way that is uh, really comprehensive to all the different groups of people. You mean talking about Native Americans after the whole, they taught us how to make corn? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Someone who grew up in New England, um, there was not a whole lot. I remember the first time I learned about the Trail of Tears was it was sixth grade. So I feel like that's, I guess, good. But I almost as a sixth grader, as an 11 year old, I think I remember feeling a little bit like, is this even real? Because wouldn't I have already known about this? Or wouldn't that wouldn't we be like, as an as a country, like really reckoning with this and learning about all of this shit earlier and get and cutting because the defensive stupid questions like of, of your friend who, who I know, which I'm so excited, who, which, who is it? But like, I think <laughs> asking these like dumb questions is part of learning when you're younger. Like you can ask these stupid, ignorant questions because you're younger and you're learning and that you have like the, a sl- smaller, maybe like analytical side and, a, and less of a sense of history. And that is what school is supposed to be right. for. <laughs> like, yeah. And like people who are raising white children need to also instill that in them. It's like the adults need to teach children about race in a real way. Like don't make little hands that look like turkeys. And oh, <laughs> that's is this, is that's this new American history? <laughs> No, you know, like there are pictures somewhere of me. You know, they had that puff paint in the nineties, and you like <laughs> cut the shirts, yeah, the, the crop top with the, the strings hanging down, and puff paint animals. And now you're a native. Oh my god, because that's a good class activity. <laughs> yeah, it's just and all you know. It's like the people that are in charge of. Like in Republican Republican led states, generally the people deciding what's in the textbooks are politicians, not educators, yeah. not only white people. It's like we need an inclusive history to be taught. Because also then these kids grow up and think like this is what the world is. I don't get what these people are talking about. Like yeah. you know, what are you talking about with all these Native American issues? We we just we sh- we broke bread, we had a great meal. What is what do you think? And now they don't exist anymore. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, oh that I mean Earlier this year, there was a news story which blew my mind, which was talking about the Little Ice Age and how because of the like mass slaughter of Native Americans in North America, it triggered like the Little Ice Age that affected the rest like a global it's a global it was a global cooling of the of the planet because of the reforestation because people couldn't farm the land. It just grew like was so overgrown. I mean, even as someone who I felt like I already knew the Mm -hmm. And if it's sort of like, we should teach that. That should be like an item mm-hmm. that everyone learns. That should be an item. I agree. <laughs> Just to show up. I don't know if you've read the book, but I very strongly feel like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee should be required reading for everyone in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, not to be too graphic, which the book is extremely graphic. Yeah. The things that people did to Native bodies, very mm-hmm. grotesque, very grotesque. And I had a friend who read it and was just like, I had no idea, absolutely no idea that this was going on, that this happened. And I just had this sense of all my ancestors in the back, like, "Uh uh-huh, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it did. Oh, and it's still, it's, yeah, it's still something that pe- the, the graphic nature of, of that, that violence is still not really recognized, certainly not in school. No, and just throw a chapter there. Yeah. <laughs> and then they mysteriously disappear from the rest of your textbook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But oddly, when it gets to like the Holocaust, mm. you'll see horrifying, horrifying pictures. And it's supposed to not really scare, but scare <laughs> kids into, you know, not wanting to be racist or kind of the harm that happens when you're ignorant. And for some reason, that is more palatable for people. But then when you want to present this stuff from a native perspective they're like um we can't we can't do that right it's like look at the atrocities that a different country did how horrible of them naughty germany but we look at what we as a country have done how we were how we you know began when you take you know you turn the lens around on yourself people again get defensive there's just this defensiveness wired into people where they're unwilling to accept the reality of the situation yeah and right now in canada this rcmp is conducting raids on native land and arresting anyone who's found because they're trying to take resources have you heard about it no No. See, that's the problem. (laughs) And I'm not saying you, but the only people I see talking about it are other Native people. And there was an Instagram account that was giving play-by-play almost of what was happening. I hear the trucks, the trucks are coming in. Once this raid happens, I won't be able to update anymore. And when they went radio silent, my heart just dropped. Yeah. Yeah. And... Canada's kind of declared a no press zone. Mm-hmm. Not kind of, they did. Mm-hmm. And people aren't supposed to bring cameras. They're not supposed to record. And so all this violence is happening against these people. And it's literally being blocked. Anytime there's a cameras aren't allowed or the press isn't, mm-hmm. you know, that that is that which should be re- huge red flags. Yeah. And that's like another good point is like how the media kind of presents things because in Washington state there's so many so many stories of like indigenous women going missing or being found murdered and if that were happening at that same rate to white women it would be a fucking national outrage but you know the most you get from the media reporting these things are stories buried they don't give them the airtime the space that they and it just adds to their ignorance and be like oh no racism is not big of a problem because I look around yeah. and this is what I see yeah, and this is what the news chooses to cover. So if I haven't heard about it, it probably isn't a big problem or it doesn't exist. Or people are making a big deal out of it where it doesn't need to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something I really wrestle with is even now hearing all this, I my brain's like, oh, I don't, they're not the ones doing it. I don't want to place blame. But like, <laughs> I don't know why my brain is like that. I guess I have to examine why. I don't want to say coddle and i don't want to say protect but treat people with kid gloves but no one's going to give that care to me right yeah you know i wrestle with where i want to be with that because outrage culture is such a big thing right Mm -hmm. now and both in the actual reality of people being outraged and being public about it and also in the way that people talk about other people so like when you complain you're just being part of outrage culture so it's both gaslighting and i don't know like <laughs> what else to call it but 
and I feel like I want to protect people, but I think because I want them to kind of be on my side. Like I need you to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that's a really strange place to be in. Yeah. It's, I think like kind of speaking to what you're saying about feeling the need to kind of put on like the, the kid gloves, so to speak. On one hand, it's like people don't necessarily deserve that, but it's, it's just like another burden on you because people don't hear what you're saying unless it's said in a way that makes them receptive, if that makes right. sense. It's like this extra mental load of approaching things from a quote unquote nice perspective, not too aggressive, not too this or that, so that they'll actually hear you. I try not to argue with people on the internet, but like, I do. (laughs) I find myself like, I'll write something and I'll look back over it and be like, take out all the sassy shit. You know, like the only way you're going to reach this person is if you're approaching them from a very specific kind of gentle way, which also then feels disingenuous because it's like, am I being true to myself if I'm kind of coddling this person? But I think in a lot of cases, it's the only way to make someone hear you. Yeah. I mean, it's, there was a, I forget if it was a hidden brain that was maybe talking about this, but how there's science that shows that people genuinely their brain, the part of their brain that's like receptive and listening, like kind of shuts, shuts off and they become defensive. So defensive that in fact, they're not actually taking in facts when they feel that they're act. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to have to, I wish I could like give you an actual source for this, but I promise (laughs) it was, it was some like NPR outfit. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think that that's both frustrating and something that like, unfortunately probably Mm -hmm. has to be contended with, which is how you, it doesn't really help because it's, it, it doesn't feel fair to have to say like now, in addition to all the to the rest of the burdens, the burden is also to communicate to you this whole heaping systemically unjust system and all the ways historically and now and all like literally everything, wrap it in a bow and give it to someone in a digestible little, little bite-sized piece yeah. and consume and not feel their fifis are hurt. Totally. Which <laughs> consider how like women and women in color in particular are expected to behave, to be accepted in society, you know, like you're not supposed to be quote aggressive or so it just, it piles onto that idea that like, oh, we have to, you have to behave a certain way, but then it's rooted in this science that like, if you do behave that way, maybe you'll get heard. It's just like another burden and mental load that people have to deal with. It's like, you should have every right to scream at the, about the injustice that's happening and have people hear you. And it sucks that that's not the case and that you do have to kind of put on these, these kid gloves and really kind of put on your preschool teacher voice and explain, <laughs> not hurt your feelings. So don't want to get defensive. I want you to hear me. I'm saying this because my people are dying and you're not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Right? There's, I mean, Pod Save the People, and oh my God, I'm like a shill for these crooked media podcasts. But Duray McKesson, the like Black Lives Matter activist, and he has this team of people, and they have a really, it's probably my favorite podcast of the group because each week they give like, they talk about the news and it's like not any of the top news stories. And he has like a resident academic from Harvard, he has a, uh, a statistician, and he has someone who was on Obama's 21st century policing force. Um, oh, wow. 
And the four of them together make this like really each week, just such a compelling argument through the news that they're talking about and the way that they talk about the stories. I learn so much every week. And I just wish that 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 was some sort of required, you know, listening for people because it's all this, I mean, just the intricate web of, of issues that are, you know, that race, racial inequities touch from like environmental stuff to something like police unions. And so you think about when you think about violence, you're not necessarily connecting the dot that like, well, we don't have accurate statistics on violence in police forces because of police unions, which are unfortunately one of the strongest, like I'm all for unions, but like, you know, we should all be as lucky as to have as strong of a union as, as a, a lot of police forces do where they can, you know, have misdemeanors and any, any complaints that come up against them formally, you know, they get to be locked away in an HR vault that no one can touch mm-hmm. and the press can't look at. And after three years, they're just totally destroyed. It's like, well, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't help with like predictive policing. <laughs> I believe police need to be safe. Like I yeah. will always say, I believe that poli- police need to be safe. I, my brother was an EMT and he had to wear a bulletproof vest because if they got called to a domestic, someone was hurt and you don't know what you're walking into. You never know what you're walking into. So from that perspective, absolutely, I want you to be safe. I don't want you to go out and get killed. Right. However, (laughs) accountability. Yeah. I would like you to not be able to kill people. Yeah. With impunity. You couldn't like literally get away with murder. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. Mm, you're making me feel very conflicted and I don't want you to die, but I just really feel like I shouldn't die either. Yeah. yeah. Fair. Pretty Fair. reasonable. Pretty reasonable. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think I was expecting answers coming into this, but <laughs> I like the three of us are going to fix it. <laughs> I think some things that white people can do beyond kind of what we were talking about in terms of speaking up and getting informed and knowing what's going on so that you can be a helpful person. You can donate to anti-white supremacy groups if you like Black Lives Matter, any, you know, NAACP, all kinds of places. And then there's this thing that I learned about, <laughs> like literally today, um, there's this website called showingupforracialjustice.org. And there are all of these groups all along the country. I just joined Seattle's anti-racist whites group where white people meet and try and address racism and engage with activists and I love that yeah Yeah. right it's nice and you know I found that by google and and pretty much everyone can (laughs) and you know you can even look up like how to be a white ally you know organizations that serve people of color in my area when you hear about awful things happening like know who your local elected officials are know how to get in touch with them and reach out and call and send letters when there are things going on that are you know that are racist or like please care about people around you who you see are not receiving care because like like you said the emotional energy that is spent on like screaming at people mm-hmm. just screaming like please don't take native land or and build a pipe through it and ruin our water sources mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. <laughs> please don't put our children in concentration camps yeah. you know you said earlier and we talked a little bit about it about white people not having to worry so much about some of these things mm-hmm. and that's a privilege but I just wish people would see that it's a privilege and then 
do something about it. Like, I'm not affected by this, but I don't want you to be affected by it either. And do something instead of just like, well, that sucks, you know? Yeah. It's like white people have to really actively choose <laughs> to yeah. be involved in, you know, the race conversation. Because you can, you can easily just be a white person and live your life and succeed in whichever way you measure success and not have to worry a day about it. But like, then what kind of person are you? Where is your empathy? Where is your humanity? Like, there is no biological race. It is a social construct. We are all human beings. It's so, maybe it's a little naive, but if people could just see the humanity in one another, I think that'd be great. I don't know yeah. how to do that. <laughs> I mean, if that's naive, no. I'm naive too. I I yeah. wish you just see people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like too, and on the like, like on the actionable front, one thing like this year that I'm I'm actually I like started constructing a text to my brother. Um, you know, but it's sort of like I'm trying to find people who you know, he's a very like affable white dude who kind of like, I don't know. I was just thinking about this before we started recording, like, this, you know, I don't, this is not a compliment to him, but he's like, he can sometimes I think be like Republican passing, like, cause he has this, like, he's very liberal, but he like has this weird kind of bro energy. It's that, the bro energy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He has a bro energy. And I think that like, and he, I know that he wants to help and he, he, he'll text me questions based on like people's Facebook statuses to ask for like more background or what are they referring to? And this year I'm thinking like what I'm going to, I'm going to text him and say, okay, you want to know how you can help? Like you have lots of friends, you've worked in Maine, Susan Collins needs to be voted out. And what you can do is go spend your energy, like go talk to people in Maine, talk to like guys who will like actually connect with you, you know, like you (laughs) have these conversations with people who will listen to, unfortunately, you versus like an angry woman or like a person of color. Unfortunately, I like just send, I'm going to kick you in the butt and go up to Maine and talk to these infuriating like middle ground borders, <laughs> like on a very practical level, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about who I'm going to reach out to in different, you know, there's, I have a friend who's in Duncan Hunter's like district in California. And it's like, thankfully he just, you know, he's going to jail, but it's like, don't let another dickhead win in that district. Come on. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. yeah i i'm with you i (laughs) I, you shook my thought right out of my head i was like oh hi (laughs) i don't know i just uh, so your brother asking questions is great i see a lot of twitter things of people who say they're just trying to understand, but they're really being confrontational mm-hmm. about cultural practices or when people talk about racism, they're like, why is this important or why X, Y, Z, just asking questions. I think also people need to understand that if someone doesn't want to educate you, that it's not their responsibility because that is, it's very tiring. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, I can't be responsible for telling you all the different ways that my hometown was racist or my life is affected by the way people treated me or the way people looked at me and my own Mm -hmm. self-esteem. We can talk about that if we're friends, but like, I don't have to. (laughs) 
Totally. Right? Yes. <laughs> there's the internet, there's the library, there are books, books essays <laughs> and movies, documentaries. Like, really well-written articles. so many resources out there. <laughs> I don't have to just go up to the closest person of color and be like, can you explain racism to me like real quick? <laughs> I think all white people need to read the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, who is someone who goes around and to different workplaces and kind of speaks to racism and racial issues and encounters a lot of angry, defensive white people and really kind of synthesizes a lot in that book, kind of explaining what white privilege is, what white fragility is, what you can do, this and that. So I think that's that's a good one for people to kind of get their, their paws on. <laughs> yeah, their feet wet. Yeah. I might read it because it might help me I don't feel like I should have to educate people because obviously my podcast is partially about educating people and mostly about and having a safe place to express the things that you've gone through. So in that sense, it's educational, but it's just so much and so nuanced that I think I wanted to have another perspective or two other perspectives <laughs> that would maybe help me get my thoughts to people listening and also maybe echo the thoughts of people who are listening as well because it's hard like learning how to navigate this stuff it is and there are lots of I think like there are lots of different ways that you know everyone can be like everyone all white people can be better and like also like you say no one should be asking in a way that's like, you know, demand in a demanding way, kind of like, tell me how, tell me about racism. You know, it's like, you can, like, you have the ability to Google and like, yeah, there are just, there's so many resources at this point. And I think like everyone should feel there shouldn't be this like personal burden on you to have to respond to every query that comes your way. It's like, that's absolutely not fair. I, I'm sure that there's, there's some tactful way to say it because I'm such a people pleaser. I would try to, but you know, <laughs> you can also tell them to like f off and read a book, like depending on who you know, it is and your patience sometimes level. I, <laughs> sometimes I feel like I have to be careful with white people because I'm talking about race. I think that's part of it too. Mm -hmm. If I approach this as a black woman or even as a native woman, I'm just going to be seen as someone who's angry and they're not going to listen to the podcast and listen to things that are really important that we're talking about. And I'm worried that like, if I get angry or say something that might turn someone off, they will stop listening to a very real crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's just me in my head or an unfortunate reality. Yeah, it's I think pretty it's, real. It's, it's real. <laughs> it's an unfortunate reality. I I love um, Rebecca Traister's book, Good and Mad, where she also, she talks about the rage of women in a really compelling and like cathartic way. Um, she just has a really good way of working through the rage. Um, she's a white woman, but I feel like, she, you know, <laughs> from my like other, you know, another white woman giving like another, like, I don't know, <laughs> but I think that she does a good job of encompassing like a lot of different perspectives and the fear of, of women feeling like you can't express your rage and then it manifests in these different ways, but there's a lot to be upset about. There's a lot to be enraged about. I mean, missing indigenous women is horrific and the level to which that community is ignored is unconscionable in this country yeah. and in Canada. 
I never thought Canada was bad necessarily until I had started having friends that were that are native who live up there. And, you know, everybody jokes, oh, if Trump gets reelected, I'll move to Canada and stuff like that. That will never come out of my mouth in a serious way ever again. Mm. Like, I don't want to say there's nothing good about Canada. Hi, you're my second highest listener. Country. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it feels almost like this bubble has been burst. Like I had this idea of Canada that was very vague and happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the same kind of bubble I had about the North. Like I didn't think there was racism up here. <laughs> oh. I, I was wrong. <laughs> Yeah. I was very shocked when I found out there was racism in the North. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I was like, here too, a too brute. <laughs> where can I go? Oh, God. No, where can I go is a very valid question. Sometimes yeah. I ask myself, like, that's another reason why this podcast for me is important. The unfortunate answer a lot of times is nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, creating your own space. Yeah. yeah. Where can I go where I can talk about racism? Uh, not Twitter. <laughs> Definitely not Twitter. <laughs> oh, but thank you so much for. I feel like we could talk about this for a million years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. We should do it again. We can do a part two. <laughs> yeah. We'll give it a, a few weeks and be yeah. like, here, digest this. Yeah. <laughs> and anyone and will come back. aren't hurt, you know, can come back. And. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Let us know if you're ever in Seattle. Yeah. I. <laughs> <laughs> Why won't you hang out with us? <laughs> no, it's not the hanging out with you that's the problem. I'm just like, my first thought as a mixed with black woman. It's very white here. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> no, not that. Not that. My hair. Because <laughs> oh. it's all rainy. Like, that's my perception oh, of her. Yeah. The summer is the only time then. <laughs> I'll come in the summer then. We can hang out in the summer. Be our fridge. Yes. Honored that you asked I us. I feel like I'm on The Bachelor and I just got a rose. <laughs> oh my gosh. According to the reason I talked to you is because of your episode recently I listened to. Anytime someone who is outside of your community and sees what's going on and, and gives a very honest look at racism and how people are treated to me is just like a really good moment like oh thank you for the validation good i'm glad we can help me (laughs) (laughs) it's nice to hear that because sometimes i think Mm -hmm. too like when we talk about this there's like definitely feeling a little bit self-conscious because it's Mm -hmm. like well we're just i don't know what good it does you know there's like that that doubt doubting little voice in your head Mm -hmm. that's like why are we you know we're just too white women talking to each other about Mm -hmm. this but like ideally it's it's like penetrating like I know some of my Republican relatives listen and you know I'm like we're hoping that Mm -hmm. it gets to people and so I'm glad that I'm glad that you you know we're glad you liked it yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know there's one way to do it and there's definitely a lot of ways not to and (laughs) I think that awareness that self-awareness is what makes it not, I don't want to say palatable because like fuck that but <laughs> <laughs> totally makes it f- genuine yeah so as long as I guess as you think you're not the authority on 
yeah. any of it, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I don't feel like you're like that because I have encountered white people who are just not helpful yeah. Yeah. for one reason or another. Yeah. We yeah. certainly know. We know some people. <laughs> <laughs> we know some people. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> well, I know I enjoyed those episodes. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find you and listen to that episode and the other things that you have to offer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean. Yeah, that episode, I'm just looking, the episode of Racism on America, I think it was episode 62, maybe? Yeah. All our episodes are on our website, too. At- so do you have anything interesting coming up that you want to tell anyone about? Well, we are, we're um, just, I think, as you're also working on a YouTube um, channel, mm-hmm. we're, we're working on one too. So if people are Googling Feminists Without Mystique, because, um, you know, you can find us, we have a website and, you know, Apple Podcasts and all that, Instagram, Twitter, check back and maybe, I'm, you know, like a yeah, couple, couple of weeks, weeks a month. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> got ideas. <laughs> got ideas. Well, maybe you can come back and we can both be on our YouTube channels. <laughs> Everyone will get to see us this time. Ooh, yeah, I love that. that would be I'd great. I love that for us. <laughs> <laughs> we can oh. all wear red lipstick because we lose mm-hmm. some of our mystique when we talk with our faces. So. <laughs> 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 we'll have yes. a mysterious red lipstick. <laughs> yes, I love Sunglasses. that. Sunglasses, very chill, very chill. <laughs> chill vibe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for being on this episode with me and talking to me and putting up with my trying to gather my thoughts. No, thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think we both really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. We we love you. Yeah, we're happy to. Well, but we look forward we look forward to connecting again, hopefully in the, you know, in the future sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Some Kind of Brown, and I would love to interact with you over, especially on Instagram. You can also join us on Patreon for ad-free episodes, after-interview debriefs before the episode comes out, stickers, t-shirts, and more. Another great way to support the podcast is to subscribe wherever you're listening and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Podchaser to help our brownish family grow. You can find the links to everything and more in the show notes through the link tree on my social media bios. All of your support is what keeps this podcast going. Thank you to purpleplanet.com for the use of their song Love Life, and I'll see you later with some more Shades of Brown.